Section twenty three of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. On Saturday, March the twenty seventh, I introduced him to Sir Alexander Macdonald, with whom he had expressed a wish to be acquainted. Footnote. The brother of Sir J. Macdonald mentioned Ante Volume one, page four four nine. Johnson visited him in the Isle of Skye. He had been very well pleased with him in London, but he was dissatisfied at hearing heavy complaints of rents racked and the people driven to emigration. Boswell's Hebrides, September the second, seventeen seventy three. He reproached him also with meanness as a host. End footnote. He received him very courteously. Sir Alexander observed that the chancellors in England are chosen from views much inferior to the office, being chosen from temporary political views. Johnson. Why, sir, in such a government as ours, no man is appointed to an office because he is the fittest for it, nor hardly in any other government, because there are so many connections and dependencies to be studied. Footnote. Lord Campbell, Lives of the Chancellors, points out that this conversation followed close on the appointment of the incompetent Bathurst as Chancellor. Such a conversation, he adds, would not have occurred during the Chancellorship of Lord Hardwick or Lord Somers. End of footnote. A despotic prince may choose a man to an office merely because he is the fittest for it. The King of Prussia may do it. Sir A. I think, sir, almost all great lawyers, such at least as have written upon law, have known only law and nothing else. Johnson. I know, sir. Judge Hale was a great lawyer, and wrote upon law, and yet he knew a great many other things, and has written upon other things. Selden, too. Sir A. Very true, sir. And Lord Bacon. But was not Lord Coke a mere lawyer? Johnson. Why, I am afraid he was. But he would have taken it very ill if you had told him so. He would have prosecuted you for scandal. Boswell. Lord Mansfield is not a mere lawyer. Johnson. No, sir. I never was in Lord Mansfield's company. Lord Mansfield was distinguished at the university. Lord Mansfield, when he first came to town, drank champagne with the wits, as Prior says. Footnote. But if at first he minds his hits and drinks champagne among the wits, etc. Prior's chameleon in a footnote. He was the friend of Pope. Footnote. Plain truth, dear Murray, needs no flowers of speech. Pope thus addresses him in Epistle 6, Book 1, of his Imitations of Horace, which he dedicated to him. End of footnote. Sir A. Barristers, I believe, are not so abusive now as they were formerly. I fancy they had less law long ago, and so were obliged to take to abuse to fill up the time. Now they have such a number of precedents. They have no occasion for abuse. Johnson. 
nay sir they had more law long ago than they have now as to precedents to be sure they will increase in course of time but the more precedents there are the less occasion is there for law that is to say the less occasion is there for investigating principles sir a i have been correcting several scotch accents in my friend boswell i doubt sir if any scotchman ever attains to a perfect english pronunciation johnson my sir few of them do because they do not persevere after acquiring a certain degree of it but sir there can be no doubt that they may attain to a perfect english pronunciation if they will we find how near they come to it and certainly a man who conquers nineteen parts of the scottish accent may conquer the twentieth but sir when a man has got the better of nine-tenths he grows weary he relaxes his diligence he finds he has corrected his accent so far as not to be disagreeable and he no longer desires his friends to tell him when he is wrong nor does he choose to be told so when people watch me narrowly and i do not watch myself they will find me out to be of a particular county in the same manner dunning may be found out to be a devonshire man Footnote. afterwards lord ashburton described by johnson post july the twenty second seventeen seventy seven as mr dunning the great lawyer End of footnote so most scotchmen may be found out but sir little aberrations are no disadvantage i never catched mallet in a scotch accent and yet mallet i suppose was past five-and-twenty before he came to london Footnote. having cleared his tongue from his native pronunciation so as to be no longer distinguished as a scot he seems inclined to disencumber himself from all adherences of his original and took upon him to change his name from scotch mallock to english mallet without any imaginable reason of preference which the eye or ear can discover what other proofs he gave of disrespect to his native country i know not but it was remarked of him that he was the only scot whom scotchmen did not commend Johnson's works, volume eight, page four six four, into footnote. Upon another occasion, I talked to him on this subject, having myself taken some pains to improve my pronunciation by the aid of the late Mister Love of Drury Lane Theatre when he was a player at Edinburgh, and also of old Mister Sheridan. Footnote. Mister Love was, so far as is known, the first who advised Boswell to keep a journal when boswell was but eighteen writing of a journey he had taken he says i kept an exact journal at the particular desire of my friend mr love and sent it to him in sheets every post letters of boswell page eight and a footnote johnson said to me sir your pronunciation is not offensive with this concession i was pretty well satisfied and let me give my countrymen of north britain an advice not to aim at absolute perfection in this respect not to speak high english 
as we are apt to call what is far removed from the scotch but which is by no means good english and makes the fools who use it truly ridiculous Footnote. that's villainous and shows a most pitiful ambition in the fool that uses it hamlet acts three scene two Geoffrey wrote from Oxford, where he spent nine months in 1791-2, The only part of a Scotchman I mean to abandon is the language, and language is all I expect to learn in England. Coburn's Geoffrey. His biographer says, He certainly succeeded in the abandonment of his habitual Scotch. The change was so sudden and so complete that it excited the surprise of his friends and furnished others with ridicule for many years the result on the whole was exactly as described by lord holland who said that though geoffrey had lost the broad scotch at oxford he had only gained the narrow english coburn in forgetfulness of mallet's case says that the acquisition of a pure English accent by a full-grown Scotchman is fortunately impossible. End of footnote. Good English is plain, easy and smooth in the mouth of an unaffected English gentleman. A studied and factitious pronunciation, which requires perpetual attention and imposes perpetual constraint, is exceedingly disgusting. A small intermixture of provincial peculiarities may perhaps have an agreeable effect, as the notes of different birds concur in the harmony of the grove, and please more than if they were all exactly alike. I could name some gentlemen of Ireland to whom a slight proportion of the accent and recitative of that country is an advantage. The same observation will apply to the gentlemen of Scotland. I do not mean that we should speak as broad as a certain prosperous member of Parliament from that country. Footnote. Henry Dundas, afterwards Viscount Melville. See post on the November the twenty ninth, seventeen seventy seven. Boswell wrote to Temple on May the twenty second, seventeen seventy five. Harry Dundas is going to be made King's Advocate, Lord Advocate at thirty three. I cannot help being angry and somewhat fretful at this. He has, to be sure, strong parts, but he is a coarse, unlettered, unfanciful dog. Letters of Boswell, page 195. Horace Walpole describes him as the rankest of all Scotchmen, and odious for that bloody speech that had fixed on him the nickname of Starvation, Journal of the Reign of George III. On page 637 he adds, The happily coined word starvation delivered a whole continent from the northern harpies that meant to devour it. The speech in which Dundas introduced starvation was made in 1775, Walpole's letters. His character is drawn with great force by Coburn, Life of Geoffrey, and a footnote. I do not mean that we should speak as broad as a certain prosperous member of Parliament from that country, though it has been well observed that 
it has been of no small use to him as it rouses the attention of the house by its uncommonness and is equal to tropes and figures in a good english speaker i would give as an instance of what i mean to recommend to my countrymen the pronunciation of the late sir gilbert elliot footnote the correspondent of hume c j h burton's hume End of footnote. and may i presume to add that of the present earl of marchmont who told me with great good humour that the master of a shop in london where he was not known said to him i suppose sir you are an american why so sir said his lordship because sir replied the shopkeeper you speak neither english nor scotch but something different from both which i conclude is the language of america boswell it may be of use sir to have a dictionary to ascertain the pronunciation johnson well, sir my dictionary shows you the accents of words if you can but remember them boswell so we want marks to ascertain the pronunciation of the vowels sheridan i believe has finished such a work johnson why sir consider how much easier it is to learn a language by the year than by any marks sheridan's dictionary may do very well but you cannot always carry it about with you and when you want the word you have not the dictionary it is like a man who has a sword that will not draw it is an admirable sword to be sure but while your enemy is cutting your throat you are unable to use it besides sir what entitles sheridan to fix the pronunciation of english he has in the first place the disadvantage of being an irishman and if he says he will fix it after the example of the best company why they differ among themselves i remember an instance when i published the plan for my dictionary lord chesterfield told me that the word g-r-e-a-t should be pronounced so as to rhyme to state and sir william young sent me word that it should be pronounced so as to rhyme to seat and that none but an irishman would pronounce it great Footnote. in the plan works volume five page nine johnson noticed the difference of the pronunciation of great some words have two sounds which may be equally admitted as being equally defensible by authority thus g-r-e-a-t is differently used for swift and him despised the farce of state the sober follies of the wise and great pope as if misfortune made the throne her seat and none could be unhappy but the great Rowe. in the preface to the dictionary works volume five page twenty five johnson says the vowels are capriciously pronounced and differently modified by accident or affectation not only in every province but in every mouth swift gives both rhymes within ten lines my lord and he are grown so great always together tate a tate you mr dean frequent the greet inform us will the emperor treat swift's works and a footnote now here were two men of the highest rank the one 
the best speaker in the house of lords the other the best speaker in the house of commons differing entirely i again visited him at night finding him in a very good humour i ventured to lead him to the subject of our situation in a future state having much curiosity to know his notions on that point johnson why sir the happiness of an unembodied spirit will consist in a consciousness of the favour of god in the contemplation of truth and in the possession of felicitating ideas Boswell. but sir is there any harm in our forming to ourselves conjectures as to the particulars of our happiness though the scripture has said but very little on the subject we know not what we shall be johnson sir there is no harm what philosophy suggests to us on this topic is probable what scripture tells us is certain dr henry moore has carried it as far as philosophy can Footnote. dr henry moore of cambridge johnson did not much affect he was a platonist and in johnson's opinion a visionary he would frequently cite from him and laugh at a passage to this effect at the consummation of all things it shall come to pass that eternity shall shake hands with opacity hawkins's johnson page five four three and the footnote you may buy both his theological and philosophical works in two volumes folio for about eight shillings boswell one of the most pleasing thoughts is that we shall see our friends again johnson yes sir but you must consider that when we are become purely rational many of our friendships will be cut off many friendships are formed by a community of sensual pleasures all these will be cut off we form many friendships with bad men because they have agreeable qualities and they can be useful to us but after death they can no longer be of use to us we form many friendships by mistake imagining people to be different from what they really are after death we shall see every one in a true light then sir they talk about meeting our relations but then all relationship is dissolved and we shall have no regard for one person more than another but for their real value however we shall either have the satisfaction of meeting our friends or be satisfied without meeting them boswell yet sir we see in scripture that dives still retained an anxious concern about his brethren johnson my sir we must either suppose that passage to be metaphorical or hold with many divines and all the purgatorians that departed souls do not all at once arrive at the utmost perfection of which they are capable Boswell, i think sir that is a very rational supposition johnson why yes sir but we do not know it is a true one there is no harm in believing it but you must not compel others to make it an article of faith for it is not revealed 
Boswell. Do you think, sir, it is wrong in a man who holds the doctrine of purgatory to pray for the souls of his deceased friends? Johnson. Why, no, sir. Boswell. I have been told that in the liturgy of the Episcopal Church of Scotland there was a form of prayer for the dead. Johnson. Sir, it is not in the liturgy which Lord framed for the Episcopal Church of Scotland. If there is a liturgy older than that, I should be glad to see it. Boswell. As to our employment in a future state, the sacred writings say little. The revelation, however, of St. John gives us many ideas, and particularly mentions music. Footnote, Revelations, chapter 14, verse 2, end of footnote. Johnson. Why, sir, ideas must be given you by means of something which you know. Footnote. Johnson, in the Rambler, number 78, describes man's death as a change not only of the place, but the manner of his being, an entrance into a state not simply which he knows not, but which perhaps he has not faculties to know. End of footnote. And as to music, there are some philosophers and divines who have maintained that we shall not be spiritualized to such a degree, but that something of matter, very much refined, will remain. In that case, music may take a part of our future felicity. Boswell. I do not know whether there are any well-attested stories of the appearance of ghosts. You know there is a famous story of the appearance of Mrs. Veal, prefixed to Drelancourt on death. Johnson. I believe, sir, that is given up. I believe the woman declared upon her deathbed that it was a lie. Footnote. This fiction is known to have been invented by Daniel Defoe, and was added to Drelancourt's book to make it sell. The first edition had it not. Malone. More than fifty editions have not exhausted its popularity. The hundreds of thousands who have bought the silly treatise of Drelincourt have borne unconscious testimony to the genius of Defoe. Forster's essays. End of footnote. Boswell. This objection is made against the truth of ghosts appearing that if they are in a state of happiness it would be a punishment to them to return to this world, and if they are in a state of misery it would be giving them a respite. Johnson. Why, sir, as the happiness or misery of embodied spirits does not depend upon place but is intellectual, we cannot say that they are less happy or less miserable by appearing upon earth, we went down between twelve and one to Mrs. Williams's room and drank tea. I mentioned that we were to have the remains of Mr. Gray in prose and verse published by Mr. Mason. Johnson. I think we have had enough of Gray. I see they have published a splendid edition of Akenside's works. One bad ode may be suffered, but a number of them together makes one sick. Footnote. In his Life of Akenside, Works, Volume 8, page 475, he says, Of Akenside's odes nothing favourable can be said. 
to examine such compositions singly cannot be required they have doubtless brighter and darker parts but when they are once found to be generally dull all further labour may be spared for to what use can the work be criticised that will not be read End of Akenside's distinguished poem is his pleasures of imagination but for my part i never could admire it so much as most people do johnson sir i could not read it through boswell i have read it through but i did not find any great power in it i mentioned elwell the heretic whose trial sir john pringle had given me to read johnson sir mr elwell was i think an ironmonger at wolverhampton and he had a mind to make himself famous by being the founder of a new sect which he wished much should be called elwallians he held that everything in the old testament that was not typical was to be a perpetual observance and so he wore a riband in the plaits of his coat and he also wore a beard i remember i had the honour of dining in company with mr elwell there was one barter a miller who wrote against him and you had the controversy between mr elwell and mr barter to try to make himself distinguished he wrote a letter to king george the second challenging him to dispute with him in which he said george if you be afraid to come by yourself to dispute with a poor old man you may bring a thousand of your blackguards with you and if you should still be afraid you may bring a thousand of your redguards the letter had something of the impudence of junius to our present king but the men of wolverhampton were not so inflammable as the common council of london so mr elwell failed in his scheme of making himself a man of great consequence Footnote. the account of his trial is entitled the grand question in religion considered whether we shall obey god or man christ or the pope the prophets and apostles or prelates and priests humbly offered to the king and parliament of great britain by e elwell with an account of the author's trial or prosecution at stafford assizes before judge denton london no date elwell seems to have been a unitarian quaker he was prosecuted for publishing a book against the doctrines of the trinity but was discharged being he writes treated by the judge with great humanity in his pamphlet he says page forty nine you see what i have already done in my former book i have challenged the greatest potentates on earth yea even the king of great britain whose true and faithful subject i am in all temporal things and whom i love and honour also his noble and valiant friend john argyle and his great friends robert walpole charles wagger and arthur onslow all these can speak well and who is like them and yet behold none of all these cared to engage with their friend Elwell. dr priestley had received an account of the trial from a gentleman who was present who described elwell as a tall man with white hair a large beard and flowing garments 
who struck everybody with respect. He spoke about an hour with great gravity, fluency, and presence of mind. The trial took place, he said, in 1726. It is impossible, adds Priestley, works, for an unprejudiced person to read Elwell's account of his trial without feeling the greatest veneration for the writer. In truth, Elwell spoke with all the simple power of the best of the early Quakers. End of section 23